0: All right, folks, here we go. Two Man Advantage, the podcast, episode number three, Pierre lebron. I feel I feel I'm almost in I, I'm not sure I'm in midseason form, but I feel like I'm ready for the regular season to begin. And I feel that Two Man Advantage is trending and tracking towards ready for opening night quality. How, how are you feeling? Are you, are you with me? Are you, are you sharing my vibe?
1: Uh, well, as I expressed myself in a tweet that went quite viral this week, <laughs> the preseason is about 50% too long for my liking, as is the Stanley Cup playoffs. But hey, let's keep it positive and move on.
0: Uh, well, see, I, I assumed that that tweet came as a result of our discussion on last week's podcast when we talked about the relevancy of uh, preseason games and whether it mattered and all those kinds of things. And. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no. and uh, I think you, we talked about it last week, and I think your tweet captured that entirely. That it's it's way too long and too much. And actually, it's a good maybe it's a good way to start. I actually at some point I want to ask you about being a hockey dad, but we'll get to that in a bit. But I, I think this is a good jumping off point because, you know, I, I mean, stuff happens whenever it happens, but when it happens during preseason, it just seems like such a waste. And so you have Seth Jones. Uh, who actually as we were I had to redo my uh, the athletic predictions because I had I had Seth Jones as my Norris trophy winner, so sorry about that, Seth, but uh, out four to six weeks with a knee injury, and so i I did replace him. um and of course, Corey Perry, who's now out five months for the uh, Anaheim Ducks, also with a knee injury sustained in a in a warm-up if I understand it correctly. and it just it just seems like to your point, oh, you know it, uh, how brutal is it for these teams to lose key personnel uh, during a meaningless time, relatively speaking, of of, of of the preparation for the regular season? And I wonder, you know, do you, I mean, it, stuff will happen, but do you think that these are the kinds of things that will make GMs uh, and take pause and wonder about, you know, is it worth it the way this, the system works now?
1: Well, GMs have basically no say in it. <laughs> I mean, as far as I can tell, this is wholly a, a Board of Governors matter, a Gary Bettman matter, and a Players matter, because, of course, the players, it's really not in their interest to want to shave off preseason, other than for the health reasons you just described. But um, they share in HRR, right? Uh, 50% of hockey-related revenue in preseason games are revenue. You know, The Leafs can trot out an HL lineup like they did Monday night at the game I was at uh at the formerly known Air Canada Centre, <laughs> and uh, they still rake in 1.2 million that night. So you know, money trumps all. But you know, I talked to a player last night after the Toronto Montreal game, who shall remain nameless because we were just uh, shooting the shit. And um, and you know, he said, you know, what stinks too about preseason is, is that you know you're flying in on the same day, you're flying out the same night. Like everything about it is out of rhythm for the yeah. players, right? I don't know if people listening to us realize that, but it's, you know, in the regular season, the team always arrives the night before, you know, they, they, they have a decent night's sleep, there's a routine, they, they get their bodies ready for the game. Preseason's a complete gong show. I mean, they're showing up at the rink at 5 p.m. off the plane, and you're on the ice two hours later. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's you know, this, it, you know, to me, the preseason could easily be cut in half so that you still have, you know, a guy like Jasperi Niemi, having the chance to, to make his, you know, prove himself that he can make the Montreal Canadiens. But instead of eight games where you're risking injury to veteran players that literally do not need preseason games, they're already in shape. They work out all year. They're waiting for the real hockey. And now Seth Jones and Corey Perry aren't part of it for, for having got injured in preseason. It's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned the young Finnish uh, forward from the Montreal Canadiens. Number three overall pick in the June draft, if I am uh, not mistaken. Have you had enough? Oh, yeah. 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 So you you have had an, uh, ample opportunity in your job with TSN. You uh, keep, pay special attention to the Montreal Canadiens. And uh, to me, this is I, I always love this this time of the year. And um, I did a a radio interview earlier in the week and we were talking just about about how important young players are around the NHL now and how it's different from say, maybe even five years ago, but certainly 10 years ago where young players are going to be asked to do so much more on so many more teams. And I wonder the Canadians are an interesting team, of course, with um, you know, all of the off season change there and Max Pacioretty going to Vegas and Max Domi coming in, of course, not playing much in the preseason after whacking Aaron Ekblad in the head, um, Alex Gelcheniak also hurt uh, now in Arizona. And I wonder when you you look at the, the the young Finn, and I will not even pretend to pronounce his name. I'm going to list. I'm going to let you do it again. Um, what have you seen from him, and what are the? What's what goes into the decision making process, whether you're Marc Bergevin in Montreal or GM, you will face something similar in the next uh, few days and and weeks. How long you keep a young player up? What is the value of having an 18 year old player at the NHL level um, vis-a-vis having them go back to junior or go uh, to the American League Mm -hmm. or go back to Europe or whatever?
1: Yeah, it's one of the more fascinating decisions of the entire NHL preseason, really. Um, and, and you're going to have to figure out his name, my friend, because uh, this guy is uh, is going to take the league by storm. I think. Jasper Uh, Kakeniemi. uh Kakeniemi, I'm, already right. a, I, I'm already calling. I'm already calling Arpin Basu, or athletic calling in Montreal. Arpin Kak Basu, because he has written so <laughs> many one, wonderful stories about him yeah, already. It's... Of course, Arpan going to the kids' hometown this summer and profiling him and, and writing another column last night after, you know, Kakademi had his biggest test of the preseason yet, having to go up against Austin Matthews or John Tavares and Austin Kadri, a big boy test, and uh, and he passed with flying colors. I mean, he again last night, I thought he was the best player of the ice for the Montreal Canadiens, and he's 18. Um, and so, you know, Claude Julien, after the game, essentially put him on the team with the caveat that he still had to obviously – Talk about the roster after Saturday's final preseason game with his boss, Mark Bergman, but but he said, "quote unquote," you know, I, it's hard not to think that he's going to be on our on our roster. The question is whether they, you know, I think he will be. The question is whether they keep him past the nine game test, um, or send him back to Finland, uh, you know, for another year to finish, you know, the, the men's league. But I've watched all of his games, uh, and he just looks mature beyond his years. And the interesting thing is he solves a lot of problems on that team, because if he ends up being the number one center on that team, it allows Max Domi to play wing and Jonathan drew to play wing and sort of allows everything else to flow underneath them uh, in terms of the other lines, because they've got a pretty good second line of Philip Deneau between Brendan Gallagher and Thomas Tatar right now. It's probably been Montreal's best line of the preseason. So Kakaniemi Making the team not only would be a great story in itself, but would actually kind of solve a long-standing issue with with that franchise. Well, and and I mean, it's it seems like a lot to ask
0: a, a kid like that to to be your number one center. But you know, is it any less of a of, of a challenge or a demand than you know, sort of shoehorning Max Domi into a position that he is. Oh, I don't think he's ever played at the NHL level and certainly hasn't played it much in his career, if I understand correctly. And, um, and where he's probably better suited to play the wing. I mean, why not? Why mm-hmm. not give the kid an opportunity? And I, 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 I want to segue because I, I really enjoyed your your Q&A with Carey Price. And there is, you know, a figure that we, you know, the no question he he's the He's the deciding factor, right? I mean, we're, he is going to be the guy that decides whether we're talking about Montreal playing meaningful games and being in the playoff hunt in January, February, or whether we're talking about another tire fire of a, of a season in Montreal. And, and I wonder what your vibe was from Carey Price and if there were things that surprised you in your uh, discussion with him as he tries to regain his form as, you know, the de facto world's greatest goaltender.
1: Well, just to finish the point on Max Domi, because I didn't watch a whole lot of Coyotes games last year, but he did play some center last year, which is where the Habs got the idea from. In fact, he took 412 faceoffs, offs um, So a lot of that was done without, apparently, some of us paying attention last year <laughs> to those games. But but he did play some center, and he also played some center with, for the London Knights before moving to wing under the Hunter brothers. But still, I'm with you. I think I think his speed and his... his Offensive creativity is, is much better used on the wing, which is where Dave Tippett had him when he was coaching the Coyotes. He had him on the wing, not at center. Um, but you're right. I mean, Carey Price is is basically where it starts and ends. I mean, you can talk all you want about, you know, it looks like the Canadians might have potentially a few 20-goal scorers if you add up Domi and Joanne and Brendan Gallagher at 31 last year. Thomas Tatar is a perennial 20-goal scorer. Paul Byron has a couple of twenty goal seasons in a row. Like there's the potential for scoring by committee, where that might be okay. Uh, the the defense is is really going to be uh, under the gun, to say the least, with Shea Weber out. Yeah. Uh, but all that is all secondary to the idea of are we going to see the Carey Price of old? And one of the things that Carey said to me right off the bat is that he he is striving to try and find. The kind of night in, night out consistency that that he was really proud of when he was having his you know that amazing half decade run. Sure. Um you just knew what you had every night with Carey Price, nine thirty one, nine thirty two, and and that's what he's really tried to put his mindset to all summer long entering the season. So we'll see. I mean, he's starting an eight year, eighty four million dollar contract, ten and a half million a year, and it's coming off his really his worst year in the pros. So it's it's a big one. It's, 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 it's not just a Montreal Canadiens story. I think people around the league are, are really keeping an eye on that storyline.
0: Well, and, and it's, I mean, there was a, so much discussion about carry price and whether, you know, whether he was happy in Montreal, whether he wanted out. I mean, all, all of this, even before, as you point out, the contract even kicks in and there's already this discussion and, and you know, better than, than anyone or most that it doesn't take much to get, Discussion going sort of off the rails in Montreal, but it, it does seem like um, this is going to be a pivotal year for Kerry Price in terms of okay, where 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 is he at in his career? Where is his game mm-hmm. at now? Where is he at emotionally and personally and all those kinds of things? And um, it, he's just such an interesting character because he's so. He's just always been so common, whether it's been internationally and you watch him play, um, you know, at the World Cup of Hockey or whatever. And certainly he has guided Montreal to places they probably didn't deserve to go to in terms of playoff runs and things like that. So, I I mean, well, let me ask you as a question then, uh, how important is this year for Carey Price on on a very personal level, do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it is important to him. You know, it's funny, like one moment from last season, and again, because I worked so many Montreal games in the Toronto studio at TSN, but there was a game late last season in a wasted season where uh, the, 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 the Jumbotron congratulated Carey Price, I, I think, for passing, for becoming the all-time games played leader for goalie in, in franchise history, something like that. If I got it wrong, you can go Google it. But it was a milestone moment. Right. And the crowd gave him a standing ovation and price responded to the crowd and you could tell that he got a little choked up yeah. and, and I think it was revealing it in that moment because I think it told you that even the great ones have doubts. And I think self doubt crept in at some level in carry price last year. And I think having the crowd remind him that they're still behind him was a special moment for him. So Listen, that's also the same crowd that's going to boo the heck out of him if he gets lit up for six goals in opening night in Toronto. But, um, you know, I think, you know, I, I do think that he has the capability to bounce back. I think he has the capability to age similarly uh, to Roberto Longo and Pekka Rinne and Henrik Lundqvist in the sense of guys that have had great years in their 30s. Yeah. Um, but Having said that, it's also in under the scope of a changing landscape for elite goalies. I, I honestly believe it is no coincidence that Braden Holpe finally broke through in the playoffs in a year in which he had to sit a lot more because of Philip Grubauer. That the two years before that, marc Andre Fleury and Matt Murray spent essentially split the net for various reasons, through injury or through performance, and and it. You know, you got the best out of both at different times as the Penguins won back-to-back. I don't think that three cups in a row decided with, uh, you know, depth and goal is a coincidence. I'm starting to wonder about the wisdom in playing your starting goalie 70 games, a.k.a. Sergei Bobrovsky in Columbus, and expect that you'll still have some juice left come playoff time.
0: Well, yeah, and I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. And when you when you look at teams that, um, you know, some of the moves that have been made in the off season, uh, you know, to me, a lot of that is it speaks to that kind of. Okay, obviously, you. you I mean, you, I think it's important to have a number one goaltender. I think it's. I think teams love the idea that they have a a guy that they know is going to be in for a lot of the games, but they also have to have a high comfort level with, um, you know, the guy who's coming in behind and having spent a lot of time in Dallas last year, you know, for, you know, people, you know, it was a terrible end to the season, but and I don't know where they finished up. I still think they were seventh overall in goals allowed, but for a lot of that season, Ben Bishop and Kari Latinen were an excellent one, two punch. And I think they were for a lot of the middle uh Part of that season, we're we're top five goals allowed team, which is something. and And I wonder, is there a team that you're looking at now and you think, okay, have, have they moved into that kind of one two punch where, hey, this is a team that's exactly what you need. and I, I think of you mentioned Philip Grubauer, who went to uh, Colorado, obviously traded uh, at the draft uh, by Brian McClellan. So Simeon Varlamov and Philip Grubauer now in in Denver hopefully solidifying that position. Um, you know, however it works out in Toronto, Freddie Anderson, and whether it's Curtis McElhaney or whoever, is there a team that you're looking at saying, hey, you know what? I think that tandem, I, I wonder how that's going to work out because these are, you know, it's going to be important to have that
1: kind of balance. Well, I'm concerned for Washington. And I think frankly, it's a concern shared by the organization. They believe in Phoenix Copley, Philip Grubauer's replacement, but they don't know for sure that he'll be able to be a, a good backup in the NHL. They, they have to give him the chance first. And I think there's a lot riding on that decision. You know, I mean, uh, you don't want to play Braden Holby 70 games because, again, you literally know that that has not led to what you want at the end of the year. Um, yeah. So can Phoenix Copley play important games for the Stanley Cup champions? And if not how quick will the trigger figure be on Ilya Samson after their first round pick who, you know, I think will you know, need to play a bunch of games in the AHL as he gets adjusted to North American hockey. But if Phoenix Copley can't cut it, I mean, how long do the caps wait to say, okay, we need, we need something better here. So I think that's one of the, one of the bully situations that I think is most intriguing, kind of weird when you're talking about the Stanley cup champions, but that's a big one that they, have, they were forced to trade Philip Grubauer. Um, yeah. and, I think, Double- you know, and, and I think, you know, and I think, you know, and I still think there are other teams that, you know, Freddie Anderson, I think, played too much in Toronto last year. So whether it's McElhaney or Garrett Sparks, and I think it'll be McElhaney, I think Mike Babcock has to play him a bit more and trust him more. Because I, I just, again, I, I'm convinced that you can't run your number one into the ground.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I go back to the, you know, we, we're being asked to produce our uh, list of predictions. I know you hate predictions in, in general. Have you done yours yet? Have, you know, you, the deadline is today. But I, I, I did. did. I did. did you? Okay, and well, I love them because they're, they're anonymous this year. So I, know, I don't have to share them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you, so you will have to share them. But uh, <laughs> so uh, the one that the team in this in this same vein, now I didn't pick them, but and and this was part of my rationale for not picking the Winnipeg Jets to be the Western Conference champions, even though i i I love that team right i mean there's what's not to love about that team they so much going on there, but you know first of all, it's Connor He who had a terrific year, and I thought was was you know he outdoled Pecarne and a epic seven-game series in the second round, but I thought wobbled a little bit against Vegas in the Western Conference Final. Uh, certainly was outplayed by Marc-Andre Fleury in that five-game series. But there really is no, you know, it's Laurent Brossois, I think I said that correctly. I'm now thinking Look about the Finnish player. Brassois, uh, who, who came over from Edmonton. Um, but to your point, okay, so where is, you know, Paul Maurice is going to have to find a way to... Make sure that Connor Hellebuck isn't ground into the into the mm-hmm. the dirt during 82 games. When you have to contemplate, you know, where's you know presumably Nashville's going to loom large. Very good, improved St. Louis team. Dallas on the rise. Um, so there's you know, it's it's a murderer's row getting out of the Central Division. And again, it, it can't just be Connor Hellebuck playing 75 games and then expected to go mm-hmm. four rounds in the playoffs. So
1: I, I I'm yeah, that's you. another I, good I, one. I, and 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 especially when you uh when you you know juxtapose it to Nashville, which really has two number one goalies at this point. I think we all think Saros anywhere else probably would have a chance by now. And this in fact may be the year where he wrestles more starts away from Pecarina. Um so you know Nashville's really well set up in goal in terms of not having to run down Pecarine at all. There's really yeah. no reason to do that when you have Saros behind him. Uh so that's an advantage for sure. And I, I think San Jose showed that last year too, that when Martin Jones had a bit of a dip in his game, Aaron Dell played some good games, right? I mean, they, they like Aaron Dell. They locked him up. He's a decent backup and they trust him and the team seems to play the same in front of him, which is always indicative of how the players feel about him about the backup. So I'm with you. I I have a question mark there too now in Winnipeg as well, as far as the the insurance policy behind Hellebuck.
0: Yeah. I I will tell you, and not just because I spent a lot of time in Dallas last season, which was just to say the entire season, but um, (laughs) not to, not to cast stones at at Kari Lettinen because, uh, but certainly, you know, when Ben Bishop got hurt uh, during a pivotal part of the season in in early March, uh, things did go off the rails there, but the addition of Anton Kudobin as a backup to Ben Bishop. And at one point last year, Anton Kodobin really pushed to Karras in, in Boston. And there was, a you know, whether it was a real debate or just a Twitter debate, um, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, should the Bruins be looking at at giving Anton Kudobin even more work? And so I wonder about a team in Dallas now with Ben Bishop and Anton Kodobin, if he plays at that same level, again, a team that looks to um, – you know, really correct itself after a disappointing season a a year ago, maybe that's the kind of balance there that allows them to, um, you know, push themselves into the top three in, in a very difficult central division as well. So
1: there you go. Yeah. I don't know what to make of Dallas. I have to say, I mean, you obviously covered them last year and, uh, I always expect them to underwhelm, um, (laughs) Well, then you've uh, and, been happy and, because
0: they always do, right? They've missed the playoffs in yeah, 10 uh, years. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. Just,
1: uh, you know, and and Jim Montgomery comes in with a lot of fanfare, and I think it's deserved. He's had a lot of success at the college level. But it's, uh, I don't know, they're, they're like a next-factor team for me where I really don't have a firm grasp on them. I mean, you see the talent, but I always feel like it's top-heavy. You think the blue line has grown into itself, but then at times it's still an issue. I don't know. I, I, I still, I'm I'm not as bullish on them as you are, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, I I don't even know that I said I was bullish on them. I just, I, they're an interesting team. I, and I, I didn't do, I mean, we haven't been asked to sort of plot out a grid of playoff teams and non-playoff teams, but I, you know, I think that's a, that's an interesting exercise to go through. I, you know, I, when you look at the Western conference, it's so, it's so packed and there are so many good teams. In fact, you know, with all due respect to Vancouver, I, it, to me, that's pretty much the only team right now that you can say, okay, that, that team has no chance of making the playoffs, right? I mean, they're just, they, they're just in that period and they're, you know, reconstruction or rebuild or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, and, and a lot of people would be dismissive of Arizona, but, um, and I know with, uh, Elchenyuk hurt, that's, that's a big blow to them, but, you know what, Rick Tockett is changing things there. There are a lot of good players, and if Antti Ranta plays like he did at the second half of the season to start things off in in Arizona, they are going to be a team that's going to. You know, I'm not saying they're a playoff team, but you can't just immediately count them out. And so, you know, to me, Dallas is in that that great mix. Um, I'm not sure if they're a playoff team or not. Well, me, well I'll ask you: Do you, is if you if you did your playoff grid right now, projected it, would you have Dallas in your top eight in the West?
1: Don't know that I would. And the West is is a lot more difficult for me this year than the East. I feel like the East oh, yeah. is a little more top heavy and, and more obvious. Yeah. I feel like I the see. West is a lot of moving parts where there's some improved teams. I agree with you, Arizona's improved. You know, everyone's so quick to say it's the end in Chicago, but would it shock anyone if they still had some some you know some 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 breath there? Sure. Um the, the oilers to me will bounce back. Uh I really do believe that. Um, you know, I like what Calgary did in the off season. I like what St. Louis did. So these are all teams that missed the playoffs. Um, but then I could see some teams who made it last year. who are going to struggle. I just have this feeling. It's going to be a long year in Anaheim for some reason. You know, I I think there's a, I like a lot of their young players, but I think there's also an aging core, an aging core there. I just, John Gibson was phenomenal last year, but I I just see some regression there in Anaheim. Um, you know, I, I see some regression in Minnesota. Um, you know, they made the playoffs last year, but I don't think they're an improved team. Um, you know, can you really count on Eric Stahl having another 40 goal season? You know, so, uh, so it's, there's a lot of moving parts there in the West. And and then I think, I think it was a player who told me this recently about the West, but you know, would it not be shocking that there are about eight teams separated by three points in the final weekend, right. Trying to get into the final two spots. I mean, it, I think it's really going to shape up that way. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you exactly.
0: And I think that, you know, obviously the injury part of it, and it's, uh, we're going to talk to Brian, Brian Gianta uh, in a few minutes, so we, I don't want to drag this out too much. But, you know, they, we sometimes, uh, you know, the, the injury part of things um, looms large. I mean, we talk about Anaheim, they're going to miss Corey Perry now for five months. And I know Corey Perry didn't have a terrific year last year, but he's – He's a a veteran pillar on that team. So his absence is going to be felt mightily. And you talk about, you know, Seth Jones being missed in Columbus. We talked a lot about them last week in the podcast and the issues surrounding our Tammy Panarin and Sergei Bobrovsky. Mm -hmm. And and that's a that's a hard thing. But I go back to last year and I did this. I, you know, created my grid. Here was my prediction. Who makes it? Who doesn't? And the St. Louis Blues heading into the season last year. I don't know if you remember. They were all kinds of banged up right? They had key people out. They were, they just looked like a team that was sort of limping to the starting line, let alone to the finishing line. And I thought that's going to mm-hmm. be too much. And yet for the first third of the season, they were one of the best teams in the in the NHL and it was only in the final third where they faltered. And uh, Jake Allen wasn't very good. And, and they ended up, of course, missing the playoffs in, in game 82, losing to Colorado. So I, I'll ask it as a question then. Are, like, uh, Do you think, is there something that's happened during preseason and as you head into the regular season that you say, you know what, that's, you know, the loss of Corey Perry is really going to, that's going to contribute to a real difficult start for Anaheim or Seth Jones loss in Columbus? Or is there something else where you're saying that team, I don't know if they're going to be able to get out of the gates?
1: There can't be a a more dark cloud situation right now than in Columbus. Aaron Portsline is going to be a busy, busy man for uh, for, for the athletic covering that team. Because you could say what you want about, you know, our attorney Panarin and Sergey Borowski being pros and going out and leaving out on the ice for their teams and honoring their contract. They will. They are pros, and they are going to have good seasons. But at the end of the day, you know what's on the other side of this. And uh, in Panarin, Panarin's case, it's a slam dunk. He's not signing there. Yeah. So that, that casts uh, a, a dark cloud over a season, no matter how you spin it, how you talk your way out of it, how you pretend to ignore it. I don't know how you're not a player in that room while respecting the guy because it's a business and it's his right to be UFA, but I don't know how you go to war and think that everything's fine. You know, like, so a, you start the season with all, with all that crap. And then, and then you lose a Norris Trophy contender for four to six weeks. I mean, holy jumping! Like, yeah. I, I I can't imagine there's a team more affected right now by by negative vibes and negative things than than the, the Columbus Blue
0: Jackets. Yeah, I I think it's going to, I mean, it's, the start is so critical for, well, it's critical in the West because of what, the way we described how condensed that standing, those standings are going to be. But there are just some teams that really need to, they need good vibes getting going. And Columbus, I think, would be one of those teams. And it's, and it certainly isn't, isn't there now. Now it'll be interesting, you know, that's a challenge for John Tortorella. Can you, can you create that kind of us against the world, and I know, you know, I talked to Mike Yo early in the season last year about, wow, you know, you guys really, you guys are playing great, even though a lot of people would have expected the opposite given the injuries, and he said, you know, some some people just sort of rally around that kind of, hey, and you saw it in Vegas pretty much all last year, it wasn't the injury thing, but it was people doubting and, you know, penciling them in as a draft lottery team from day one, and, and they rallied around that, so it'll be interesting to see whether it's in Columbus, maybe it's in Anaheim. I know you and I talked to John Tavares in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and that look in his eye, where people have people have truly written that team off, and it really bugs mm-hmm. him. So it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, if there's, you know, if teams can sort of use that as a motivational factor to get off to a kind of good start, which is so critical. So. Um, all right, just before we call Brian Gianta, I've been thinking about you lately, and I know you spend a lot of time in hockey rinks. Your kids are a lot more involved now than, you know, certainly two or three years ago. You probably didn't you know spend all that much time in, in local rinks. And I wonder, did, does it change how you view the game? I mean, I spend a lot of time in local rinks, rinks hither and yon with, with my son. And I wonder if it's, does it change how you view the game? Do you, as a hockey dad, do you think it
1: changes how you do your job? Well, I think it's a reminder uh, because you're right. I mean, I'm now <laughs> spending Friday morning, Saturday morning and Sunday mornings uh, in rinks all over Toronto. My three kids play on three different teams. So my wife and I are all over the place. And, and it's a reminder of, you know, the, the family commitment that all these guys that end up in the NHL um, ha- had to have to make it all happen. Right. Uh, I mean, i yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're not, I'm not talking about my kids making the NHL, but I'm just saying, even at yeah. our, our fun level of hockey, the commitment and time and, and sacrifices so that your, you know, your kids can enjoy this wonderful sport, uh, financial, uh, time wise, uh, sleep deprivation. Um, and, and so it's funny when I see young NHLers make it, I always, you know, I, I think, it carries so much weight when these kids always thank their parents first and thank them for, you know, everything they did. I mean, John Tavares talks about that all the time with his parents, right? And yeah. and, and as a lot of players do, and it's because they mean it. They they literally would not have made it where they are without uh, incredible um, support from their parents. You know, some parents taking on second jobs and doing this and doing that just to, to make sure that their kids can play it Um you know, the top level that they can. So that, that's what hits home for me As I spend all this time in these rinks now with my kids.
0: I'm curious that, you know, I, I'm, but, uh, you know, like I'm not saying that you are a, like an NHL star, but I always remember talking to, uh, <laughs> <There's laughs> you're you big, you're big though. And I would like, do parents come up, do you, do you find that people want to engage you with, hockey talk and like do you it, what's it like for you because you're i mean you're a well-known figure in in the hockey world and to show up at the local rink do you do you have people who want to engage you and and what's that like for you
1: yeah no absolutely i mean now more than ever because the leafs have this have the city of toronto buzzing like it hasn't for a long time so uh I, <laughs> I must have been at the rink for just 35 seconds last weekend when i dropped off one of my daughter's and I was uh, waiting for her to get dressed and three different parents came up to me and asked me how I think the least we're going to do this year. So <laughs> It's certainly, but you know, for the most part, you know, certainly once my kids are on the ice, uh, every, everyone's really good about, you know, let's just focus on what's going on with our kids. So
2: it's, yeah.
1: uh, it's all good. It's all good. As as I like to say, I'm lucky. Uh, we, we're pretty lucky what we do for a living. So
0: yeah, no people want to yeah.
1: talk about it with us. It's all good. You're not
0: you're not one you're not banging on the glass so the are you? I bet you're a uh, great no, am Yeah.
1: I'm about as quiet a parent in the stands as you can find. Yeah. Not not looking for not looking <laughs> for attention. Yeah. I must admit, I I find that my role
0: is to provide constructive criticism to officials. That's all my i I'm not yelling at my kid. I'm not yelling at <laughs> anyone else, but I do <laughs> like to occasionally offer some constructive criticism. I hope, I hope I, Stephen Walker, if he's I, listening, he can appreciate that. I'm I'm trying to groom better
1: I, I, officials. I, we should have had your your son on here for verification of all that, because I will say I have played golf with you and uh decorum is not your best friend. <laughs> it's a relative <laughs> thing, my friend, a relative thing. Uh,
0: and you know what? That's perfect because and that's uh, a word I would wish I'd used more in in casual conversation, decorum, but that certainly describes Brian Gianta. So let's mm-hmm. hear from the recently retired former captain of the Montreal Canadians and Buffalo Sabres, Brian Gianta. As promised, uh welcome, Brian Gianta. I was it, it, it's I was gonna say of the but you're not really of the anyone anymore, Brian. I mean, last time you and I chatted, you were captaining uh, Team USA, getting ready to go to the Olympics in uh, South Korea, and of course before that with Buffalo Sabers and and so on and so on. And I wonder if it's really sunk in now that hey, you're just Brian Gianta citizen. <laughs> and then wonder what that feels <laughs> like for you.
3: It's uh, it's great. I mean, it's uh, I know the announcement was just a few days ago and
0: stuff, but. Um,
3: you know, the fact is that, you know, going and playing in the Olympics and then going to Boston last year, uh, after that, I knew it was going to be done. So, um, you know, it was one of those things I was prepared for and I've uh, lived with for a while now. So, um, you know, it's tough at times and I'm sure when the season's underway, it'll be tough to, to be watching at certain times, but, uh, I know the decision's the right one.
0: Oh, good for you. And I wonder, I'm curious, I was looking at your stats. In fact, I have them up in, in front of me right here. And I'm thinking, what do you remember of your first NHL training camp? You were drafted by the Devils, of course. And I wonder, when. do you remember where it was? Did they have camp in Orange or where? Do you remember uh, details of that first training camp, which I'm guessing would have been, what, 1999?
3: No, it was, uh, the rules were much different back then. so. I
0: was, drafted in, was that
3: 98
0: or after you were drafted in 98? 98. Yep. Yep.
3: So, so then as a college, uh, draft pick, you were not allowed to go to training camp until you signed. So my first training camp would have been the 2001, 2002 season. Right. So it was in West Orange, New Jersey at the practice rink and it was right after training camp actually opened on September 11th, I believe that year. And so it was, uh, uh, 9, 11 that it opened. Wow. And so it was, uh, you know, a lot of obviously memories, uh, associated with that, but, um, sure. those were the kinds of things that were going on in, in the world. But, uh, you know, it was for sure. Very memorable.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you, do you I'm trying to think of, because you were, I mean, you were a captain in Montreal and, and in fact, uh, um, uh, a captain in Buffalo, also with the Olympic team. And I was that so am I thinking was Scott Stevens, your first captain, or who, who was the first, your first NHL captain?
3: Yeah, it was uh, Scott Stevens. And then when he retired, uh, Niedermeyer took over. Yeah. Uh, and then Elias for part time. So yeah, Scott Stevens was my first uh, captain. In the
0: league. Yeah. I mean, do you, I wonder if you think the role of the captain has changed since, you know, certainly when you first came in and you were watching Scott Stevens and of course Scott Niedermeyer, both Hall of Famers. uh, And then when you wore the C for an original six franchise and so on, do you think the role of the captain is different now? Or do you think there are still things that are constant about it? Uh,
3: I think it's a little both. I think it has changed. Uh, Today's game, a lot of it is. And I'm sure to some extent it was back then, but you being a younger guy, I guess you're shielded from it. But a lot of it is leadership by committee. Um, there is a group of core guys that in a dressing room that kind of do the leading. Um, I think that was partially back in the day as well. But uh, for me, the role of captain is where you see it is really important is uh, you know kind of shielding the team, your younger guys, From the outside noise outside the room, media, um, expectations, things like that, and trying to keep that room uh, nice and cohesive and not letting any of those outside influences, you know, get to the team and really mess with the team's
0: confidence, stuff like that. Is that something I assume you must have learned a tremendous amount from watching Scott Stevens and Scott Niedermeyer? And I wonder how important that was for you when you became a captain. And, and I'm not sure there's a more difficult place to be a captain than in Montreal. What kind of lessons do you think you learned from the two Scots?
3: Well, I think, you know, that, I mean, one, how they showed up every day and worked. I mean, those, like we said, they're Hall of Famers and are exceptional talents uh but how they came to the rink every day how they worked um and then you know they're the first ones to answer the bell uh whether um you know the team is doing good or they're doing bad uh that's when they stepped up and they're answering the tough questions they were there for the media um they were there um taking the blame those kinds of things and for sure uh i learned a, a ton uh from them and a lot of the veterans that were around that time you know Newendijk was there. Um, in my first year, uh, he had gotten traded there with Langen, so there was a kind of guys in that room that really uh, helped show the way, and uh,
0: you know that I kind of learned from. Did, was it? I, not, I mean, obviously, uh, we saw Max Pacioretty, uh, another captain in Montreal, get traded to Vegas here at the start of uh, training camp. And were there times that where you found it was hard to focus on your job as? As, as a player, as an NHL guy, as well as being the captain? Or did was it, was, were you able to balance the two, you know, sort of the duties, you know, away from the actual playing and the playing, were you able to balance that? Or was, were there times that it was difficult for you? There,
3: there are times for sure that, uh, uh no matter who you are, I think there's certain times it's gonna, gonna get to you. And, um, you're focused on, Uh, trying to solve team problems, trying to solve all these other issues, um, than to sit back and try to really focus on your own game. There's a lot of extra energy that goes into um, other things. And sometimes, uh, you know, I'm sure it's a breath of fresh air for guys that have been in that to, to step away. Um, When I went to Boston last year, you know, it was, you know, you're the captain of Buffalo and things haven't gone great for three years. And it's a constant, it's a constant trying to figure things out. It's a, uh, trying to figure out how to do things how to change things how to uh, win some games and then sometimes your personal game you know it takes a, a back seat to that so um, definitely in Boston last year you had a great re- leadership group you're walking into it and just kind of worrying about your own game and how
0: to blend into the team and uh, you know there's, there's challenges to that for sure. Yeah. What, what do you, what do you think you'll miss the most about it? And uh, I, you know what, you'll, you'll get it. You'll be home with your family. You'll be doing dad stuff that maybe you haven't had a chance to do, you know, for extended periods of time for maybe forever. But what do you think you'll miss the most about, about being an NHL player?
3: Uh, well, you know, obviously the game, you love the game. You love being out there. Um, you know, there, there's things about being out there and being with the guys that, Uh, you've built that bond with, Um, you know, it's the greatest league in the world and I was able to be, be in it for a long time. So I'm very fortunate for that. So you're going to miss the game. You're going to miss the competitive nature. uh, But I think you're also going to miss those, those plane rides, those card games uh, with the guys, the dinners with the guys, um, just that tight knit group. And, you know, I've built a lot of great relationships over the years and uh, those continue guys that have retired. I, I still continue and the guys current, um, I will still continue to
0: keep in touch with those. So those lifelong friendships, uh, yeah. you know, will, will last. Yeah. Are, are there things that you're looking forward to now that, now that you're not tied to a schedule, you're not tied to 82 games or whatever it is, what, what are you looking forward to the most about being not an NHL player right now? Well,
3: it's, it's you know, uh, not missing those holidays. Uh, being able to finally um, coach my sons in hockey and and be around for my daughter's soccer you know those kinds of things you miss countless skis and stuff like that and uh, you maybe catch four or five a year where you're in town and you don't have a game that night and you can shoot off and see their their stuff so I'm really looking forward to uh, watching the enjoyment that they get out of uh, doing the things they love to do. Uh,
0: good stuff now you are going to do some stuff with the sabers what how how, what's that relationship going to be like and and my sense is that it will be whatever it is you're going to sort of ease into it but what how would you describe it and and what are you looking forward to about that part of uh, of this new phase of your life
3: well i think uh you know the the dialogue with the sabers has been great all summer long and and trying to find something that works for everybody and uh one of those things was you know um being able to last year I was with Rochester for most of the year with those guys down there and kind of in between uh I was on the ice with them practicing with them, but um you know kind of as a mentor, and I really loved that that part of it um so that will have uh for sure be a, a piece of what I'm doing is being able to go there with their young guys and and connect with those guys um almost as a you know not really tied you're not tied to a coach you're not a coach um you're not a development guy you're just there to kind of help guide these guys through their journey and uh be there as as maybe a mentor and so
0: that was a a cool thing last year and uh, i look to continue that good good stuff all right well the one downside for you not playing brian is that it will probably allow me to call you whenever I want then to try and impose on you again, to join us on the podcast, but it's, it's, it's been great. It always is. It's great to catch up with you and certainly wish you the best in, in this new phase of your career. And, uh, and thanks for hanging out today. It's, uh, it's always great to catch up. So thanks for doing this.
3: No problem. Thank you. I appreciate all the, of the years and, uh, you know, obviously having me on and, and being supportive of me and my career. So uh, anytime you need me, I'll be available
0: and I'll, uh, Trying to help out as much as I can for you. <laughs> you say that now. <laughs> you wait till I call you. But anyway, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Anyway, thanks very much, Brian. I appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. You know, I always enjoy chatting with Brian Gianta. He and I chatted just before we went to the Olympics, Pierre, and uh, technology froze you out of this discussion. But I wonder when you think of Brian Gianta, what, do you, what comes to mind for you? And maybe what what's the, you know, maybe legacy is too strong a word. But when you think of Brian Gianta, what do you think of?
1: You know, I I think about how he handled the captaincy in Montreal through some difficult times with amazing class and dexterity, especially when you consider how demanding that role is and, and, you know, the, the drama that, you know, ended Max Pacioretty's time in Montreal. But Max Pacioretty's not alone. I mean, there are other abs captains in the past, but after a while it becomes so overbearing. And I just think that. You know, it's kind of gone, maybe not mentioned enough that Brian Gionta, when he was captain of that team, and they weren't great teams at times, uh, I thought handled it terrifically in terms of always answering the bell, speaking for the room, um, speaking through tough times, and uh, and, do, and doing so eloquently and, and with a lot of class. So I, that's probably what I'm going to remember the most about
0: Brian, Brian Gionta. You know, it's it's so funny because we we think of players now in the NHL and and the whole pendulum, of course, has swung to small speed, skill, all those kinds of things, and yet he was a guy who thrived and and really developed a um, you know I mean a terrific career at a time when being a small player wasn't really part of the norm right i mean he really mm-hmm. you know he became a, a um a, you know highly respected nhl player for for many many games i mean he played um 11 10, sorry 1026 regular season games another 113 in the postseason at a time when it wasn't easy to be a small player so good for him on that end
1: so yeah no that's a that's a terrific point for sure and Probably would have padded his stats a little more had he come into the league right now. That's for sure with his skill set. Good stuff. All right,
0: my friend, that is going to bring to a close the first segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. And when we return, my conversation with our good friend and colleague, Eric DeHatchuk. So don't go away because we're not quite done yet. One of my favorite people, not just in the hockey world, but one of my favorite people in general joining us on Two Man Advantage the podcast eric DeHatchuk. I i'm 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 still getting used to the fact that you and i are actually teammates eric not just colleagues and the uh, drinking pals and restaurant pals and and all those kinds of things so it's it's a true pleasure to have you aboard not only as my pal but as a as a colleague at the athletic so welcome welcome aboard, 2 Men advantage
2: thank you very much i have to say uh you know, it always seems like we're shilling for the athletic when we say these things, but but we're all pals. Like, do people know that that you and me and Pierre and, and Craig Customs have been friends like forever? And uh, you know, at different times we've you know, like like Pierre and I were on the the satellite hot stove together. So there have been times when we've had an opportunity to collaborate in the past. But the fact that we can can do it now. It's just so much fun. It's just so, and it seems like every time the the athletic turns around and hires somebody, it's also somebody from our circle, right? But, (laughs) so, you know, welcome aboard, fellas and ladies. And it's uh, it's great. I mean, I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed that part of it. The, the camaraderie of our industry has always been something that uh, that I've enjoyed. A retired friend of ours Al and another guy that I was on hot stove with and we're still in touch. He's actually living in Malta these days. And uh, and, and, he said, and that's what he says, you know, he doesn't actually miss the work anymore since he's retired, but he does miss getting together at events like you and I at the at the player media tour and having a chance to go out and just get caught up on the summer and, and, and you know just the, there's there, there's there's a, a friendship there that even when we were competing against each other everyone knew where the lines were we work hard and compete against each other when we were competing against each other and then when it it was a time for a social interaction you know everybody put work aside and just you know got caught up in each other's lives so that was something that that has always been part of what's attractive to me about uh, about this industry and the fact that we're all working together now is just fabulous. I, I'm with you entirely on
0: all that, and, and so we're we are going to talk some hockey, and we're going to talk. Uh, I want to ask you uh, about trying out for the Calgary Flames back in the day. And but but first, people may not realize that you might be the greatest musical mind in the hockey writing fraternity. You know more about music and are so knowledgeable. I'm always curious about what you're listening to and what happened. But now I understand that you might be the most famous musical mind in the hockey fraternity because legendary musician, Graham Parker, not, he follows you on Twitter now. And, and uh, so now you're already high in my estimation Eric Dachuk but now Graham Parker following you and if anybody who's seen the movie this is 40 which of course has a pretty strong hockey content with a number of former flyers uh, Scott Hartnell Ian Le uh making cameos in that movie but Graham Parker's in the movie and now he follows you so it's sort of a circular kind of thing so I'm very pleased and and honored of course now that I know you and can uh, I will be able to uh to to live off that knowledge as well as part of
2: my relationship with you. <laughs> okay, well, so that is actually kind of a funny story, because, so, uh, Graham Parker, like, I've, you know, my, I used to, the, when I first moved to Calgary in 1978, my roommate was, was the music critic at, at the Calgary Sun, a man named James Miritich, and, and so for a period of time, because he was the music critic, he got all of the records free, it was pre-CD, but he'd but get all these records, and, 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 probably one of our five favorite artists during that time was, was Graham Parker who had, been, who had come out of England wasn't exactly New Wave but, but, uh, but was kind of grouped in with the artists like Elvis Costello and, and Joe Jackson and then band like the bands like The Clash and The Jam and uh, it, you know what I particularly like about him is that he is one of the most brilliant songwriters of his generation so I would put Graham Parker Warren Zevon, uh, Mark Knopfler Chrissy Hind, uh, I would say those are the four artists that you know that have consistently over 40 years continue to write brilliant songs and so i you know dave schultz and i saw graham parker at a club in toronto uh last summer and uh and then he has a new album coming out so it just happens that uh that i was exchanging messages with uh with with someone else that used to write music about his new album which came out last friday and i just checked on my Twitter followers and out of the blue Graham Parker's following me on Twitter and I cannot <laughs> tell you Scotty how happy I was I mean I've exchanged you know like I uh, email, email messages with uh, it's funny how uh, Twitter sort of uh, uh, shrinks the world right you know I've been back and forth with Ron Sexsmith with Nico Case uh, um, I think Nils Lofgren still follows me on Twitter uh, Marshall Crenshaw I remember being at the Olympics in Sochi one time after seeing Marshall Crenshaw in a club in the, in uh, 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 Los Angeles the, the month before, and Ed Willis, who's another big music guy from the uh, Vancouver province, was there. And uh, and I just, you know, uh, seen that Marshall Crenshaw had followed me on Twitter. I said, Wow, that's really cool. Marshall Crenshaw follows you on Twitter. And Willis is sitting beside me, and there's this pause. And he goes, Marshall Crenshaw follows you on Twitter, and I said, yeah. <laughs> Pauses again. He goes, that's fucking unbelievable. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, so yeah, I, I get a, a weird thrill out of that because I've always been a, a, a music guy, and I still every year put out. Uh, I, I try to assemble. It's all playlists now, of course, but uh, my 20 favorite songs of of uh, of the year because I think that you know even as you age, you still should try as much as possible to stay current. And I have to tell you, you know, 2018 has been a year where you know, it's been a real drought now. You know, Grant Parker's new album is out right now. It's got some great stuff on it. Mark Knopfler's got an album coming out in, in November. Uh, the New Nico Case, which came out earlier in the year, is fabulous. And there's a few others that I've, I've liked okay, uh, you know, like the Florence and the Machine album. But it hasn't been, to, to my mind and to my musical taste, a banner year for music. But, but I always find, too, that what happens is when you get into the fall, when it's, you know, just in the same way that, you know, we're sort of gearing up for hockey season, a lot of times, I think uh, a lot of the major releases come out between now and Christmas, because of course they're trying to capitalize on, on the people that, that buy music for Christmas presents. So I'm hoping that, uh, that the drought ends. And by the way, if anybody wants to send me any suggestions about songs that they've heard in 2018, that, that they think, uh, are interesting or, uh, exceptional, uh, you know, you can find me on Twitter. So yes, uh, uh, you know, I still like to stay current as, as much as possible. And, uh, and the fact that Dr. Graham Parker follows me is you know pretty much made my week last week. <laughs> well, I tell you the only thing that will make
0: it better is if you can convince Graham Parker to subscribe to the Athletic. But that's uh, you know I'll leave that to you a little DM maybe and uh, t- t- tweak him and uh, maybe we'll start to open up the uh, the musical end of things to uh, to sc- uh, subscribers to the Athletic. And uh, but I, so Eric, I, I, one of the things that I love about uh, what you do, and I'll, I'll sound like Eddie Haskell from Leave It to Beaver here, but uh, and I. I Enjoy it all, but I love your weekly notes column. And uh, and last week, you mentioned early in your career covering the Flames in Calgary after they'd relocated from Atlanta, uh, taking part in some of the training camp sessions, including uh, some of their fitness testing, which I'm sure was sort of in its infancy compared to what players go through now. Um, and and going on the ice. And you also mentioned George Plimpton, one of the great writers, in his book paper line, which detailed his exploits at the Detroit Lions training camp back in the day. And I wonder if if it it seems... Whether you tell me whether you agree, but it just seems that was sort of a simpler, maybe more innocent time where you could do those kinds of things. And I wonder if if there is c- you could imagine doing the same kind of thing now if you went to uh, Bradshaw living and uh, uh, and the Calgary Flames and said, hey, you know what? I wouldn't mind coming out and trying, you know, be you know getting on the ice with you and going through training or or maybe maybe you could. And I just wonder if if you know if you can sort of draw a line from that experience when you were much younger to, you know what where teams are at now and and whether you could do the same thing in two thousand and eighteen.
2: Yeah, I, I would say no, Scotty, uh, par- probably for insurance reasons. Like When I think about some of the stuff that we used to be able to get away with, I mean, it wasn't, I tried out for the Flames. Um, I participated in something called the Samsonite Downhill one time where you we, we threw ourselves into Samsonite suitcases and went down the mountain at Fortress Mountain. I mean, one guy ended up in the hospital, and they only ever did it once, but, the, you know, the Luna. And, and I, I competed in a celebrity equestrian competition once on a on a champion show-jumping horse with very limited, uh, ridership skills and, and and all those things you know I did in the first three or four years of my career and it re- you didn 't even have to sign an insurance waiver in those days, so I, I would say that right away like just the insurance. Uh, issues that that could potentially arise from what if something were to go awry, and those things would preclude it from happening. And but but you're right, it was a different time. I mean, so the brief background of that was that uh, the Flames had moved to uh, to Calgary from Atlanta in, in the summer of, of 1980, and I was working at at the Calgary Sun in those days. And they had just brought in a new editor in chief from Toronto, uh, and he had had someone try out for the Blue Jays a couple of years before that, and so he wanted me to go out and uh, and try out for the flames and I, and I hadn't played in, in a long time I went to high school in Toronto at Neil McNeil which was like a big hockey high school that had been a while and uh, so I did I got a chance to go out and skate with the junior team in town because I was buddies with Doug Sauter the the coach there so I got a little bit into shape and I'm like a lifetime runner so I, I like I'm fit. And fitness was never an issue for me I you know I was you know fit then i like to think that I'm fit now uh, and you are but, but yeah but but the level of hockey that's required to play at the NHL level was far exceeded the in my abilities and and uh, and, but, but I went out there, and uh, so the first day was fitness training, and you're right, um, very few teams had done uh, fitness testing, and, and the only reason that Calgary was doing it was because they had hired, as an assistant coach that year, Pierre Paget, who had been uh, you know, come out of the Dalhousie University program, and he had some colleagues in the kinesiology department at the University of Calgary, so he, they arranged to, to do fitness testing in advance of this training camp, and it was pretty rudimentary compared to what they do now, but there was a VO2 test, and I'd never seen it before, and and most of the players hadn't seen it, and most of them hadn't prepared the way players do now for these tests. And so uh, I I particularly remember a couple of things. One, uh, there was a two-mile run that you had to run in in 12 minutes, and Don Lever, who's still around the game right now, he was shot out of the cannon and and was just killing everybody. I was kind of middle of the pack, uh, but there were a couple of minor league players that were probably going to go down to their Birmingham team. They couldn't run two miles. They couldn't this is this is september of 1980 players attending an nhl training camp they were walking on the back stretch halfway through a two-mile run so that i mean that 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 just wouldn't happen now and it shouldn't happen now and and it couldn't happen now so that was one of the things that that struck me right away that was was really you know strange uh and then and then the other thing is when we we're going through the fitness testing i was going through with paul reinhardt i knew paul a little bit because the previous year he got drafted in August in that great 1979 draft. He was in Calgary trying out for the Olympic team. I was actually with him on his draft day. And, uh, and he you know, ended up leaving the camp and signing with the Flames. And he had an excellent rookie season with Atlanta. But, and Paul was a terrific athlete I mean, for Canada in the 81 Canada Cup. But he was a pretty heavy guy. And that was the era where players went to training camp to get into shape. So there wasn't this, you know, these long, you know, the, the working with the trainers and the Gary Roberts of that in the summer and then the three weeks of skating before camp. I mean, they came to camp and it was a month long, and by the end of the camp, they were in you know, better shape than they were on the day that they started, and they kind of actually worked their way into shape as best as possible through the year. So just, again, a completely different era. So, uh, so all of that went well. I mean, I had less body fat than, than Paul Reiner, but I'm a you know, tall, skinny guy. Uh, the difference was, you get it, then you go on the ice. And uh, there's two things that I particularly remember. One was being behind Kent Nilsson in a drill. And, and I don't know why I was in the order behind him, because I kept trying to get to the back of the line, so I'd have to do as few drills as possible. But one time I'm there with Kent Nilsson and it's one of those drills where you start at the blue line, and as soon as the other player hits the, the red line, then you take off. So it just gives, it, it, it creates space so that the goaltender has and it, and you go in on a goalie, and you, and you get a shot off. And it does so a goaltender can take a shot and then, and then have enough time to reset himself rather than have a second shot go whistling by his ear five seconds later. So the f- first time I did it, you know, Nilsson takes off and, and he's, he's shot out, like out of a cannon. So I'm thinking to myself, so by the time I... Left. I mean, there. You know, there was so much time had passed that I, I'm see, I'm feeling all the eyes of of the arena on me because I'm thinking to myself, this gap should not be this wide. So I did that twice, and then I realized that well, you know what I need to do. The minute he takes off, I got to take off too. And then we were sequenced perfectly because he again shot out of the cannon, and, and he had created enough of a gap that by the time I got there, Pat Riggin had a chance to to get reset. So that was one. And the other thing was. I, used, I did these, we were doing these one-on-one drills against the defense. And do you remember Randy Holt? Yeah, score, Yes, I do. Randy Holt. So Randy Holt was a very nice guy, but frightening. He had shoulder length, salt and pepper hair. He looked like an extra in slap shot. And of course that was his reputation. Like he was one of the toughest slash dirtiest players in the league. So I'm looking up and it's like, I'm going one-on-one with Randy Holt. Are you kidding me? You know, I, I could see my life flashing before my eyes. I did that a few times. And, and luckily, um, you know, it, it, um, probably because it was in the first couple of days of jails, you know, he would he took me out of the play, but not in a way that, you know, I was incapacitated in any way. And I remember uh, we we were talking a little bit on the bench afterwards, and I'm pretty sure he could tell that I was, uh, out of place a little bit here. So I, I made sure that I gushed out this. No, I'm a writer trying out for the team, not trying to take your job, not trying to take anybody's job. You don't have to do anything to... Uh, <laughs> because I wanted to make sure that, the, that there wasn't going to be any kind of serious injury inflicted upon me. So uh, anyway, it was it was an interesting experience. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure... You know, what, I mean, the thing that I learned about it was I, I think a lot of people that I knew and met at that time thought that they were really this close to to being an NHL player. And, you know, because they played some junior, or, you know, they, you know, they, they know some people who played, uh, who ended up having professional careers that they played with at, at an earlier stage in their career, and, and the, I guess the feeling is that if, if they did it, why couldn't I? But boy, Scotty, you get on the ice, and it's just different, you know, it's different. We, you know, we watch it from, from the press box, and, and it seems slower, although, I mean, the game doesn't seem slow at all anymore, but in those days it did. There was lots of open ice, and And you don't realize how fast it is until you are actually at ice level. Oh my goodness. it was it was the speed of the game. I just, it just I just flat out couldn't keep up. I just flat out couldn't keep up. And so uh, it gave me a real appreciation for. Um, for what they do, and I think a respect for, for what they do. I mean, there are people now on social media that you know that uh, you know say nasty things about players. This guy's no good. That's not guy's no good. I'll tell you what, Scotty, if you are in an NHL training camp, you're good. Now there are degrees of good, and there's you know there's Connor McDavid superstar grade, and, and Sidney Crosby superstar grade, and there's you know fringes of of the roster good, but every one of these guys can play. Everyone. You know what? why it's
0: so great to work with a person like you, Eric? You, you don't have to be taught anything. You provide the perfect segue into talking about the coming season by talking about, you know, just the fact that, you know, they're – that anyone who shows up now in an NHL camp is is a grade a player and and before we get there though I, ju- I just want I just love that story and it puts me in mind of a, a conversation I had a few years ago I was covering I think it was the Western conference final um, and I was in an airport with our colleague and longtime friend Chris Stevenson who uh, works out of Ottawa and does work for for us covering the Played with the Senators back in the early days, and is the assistant general manager of the uh, Chicago Blackhawks. And they began chatting about a time when Chris was covering the Senators in the early days, and they used to play shinny hockey after the team got done practicing. And the media and the coaches and training staff, and they would play shinny, and mm-hmm. they would use the players' gear. Like they, Chris Chris was like, do you remember when I would, you know, I'd borrow your skates and I would, you know, put your stuff on and we'd go out and play for an hour with the coaches. And Norm was like, oh yeah, that was, you know, I remember that. Like I just, can you imagine just going into the Penguins locker room saying to Sidney Crosby, Sid, uh, listen, we're going to do, you know, we're going to play for an hour. Mind if I borrow your skates and your glove and your $500 stick? And, but it just, it, it put me in mind of like, like that. Yeah, a it could never happen now. But even that it happened then still boggles my mind. But uh, yeah, but I, well,
2: and I'll just interject real quickly that so years ago there used to be a, at the All Star Game there used to be an NHL uh, media game and it would be the Canadian writers against the American writers and I remember the very first the very first one was in Pittsburgh and uh, and Dave Molinari and and uh, Tom McMillan our our good friends were the coaches of the game and I was playing for Canada and and. Uh, and uh I think Frank Brown was the goalie for the the u s Al Morganchi was on that team and and uh I borrowed. Joe Neuendijk stick because Newandike was at that all-star game and I, you know like you bring your own equipment right but a stick is it's a pain in the butt to bring a stick from, from Calgary to, to Pittsburgh so I said to Newandike I said you know when the game is over because I think our game was, was afterwards I said can I you know borrow one of your sticks yeah sure so he handed me the, again wooden Hespler that's the, that was the era that it was and I happen to have one of those games where everything you touch goes in right so I got a couple of goals I think I had an assist I drew a puck back to Damian Cox And he snapped it in. And Troy Loney, who was playing for the Penguins at the time, wrote a game story for the local (laughs) Pittsburgh paper on this event. And he came into the dressing room to interview me afterwards because I was chosen the MVP of of the Canadian team. Frank was the MVP of the American team. And I thought to myself, isn't this typical? I was definitely not the best player. I had one of those nights where everything goes in. Steve Dryden and Steve McAllister were our best players by far. But we always used to get criticized for picking stars off of the score sheet. Well, the players are guilty of that, too. So anyway, so that was and we did that for about 10 years and it was really fun. The best one of all, Scotty, we went we played on a Saturday night at eight o'clock on the Montreal Forum because the All-Star game that day was in the afternoon. So we covered the game and then we're out there playing on Montreal Forum Ice, 8 p.m. Saturday night, which is the the normal hockey normal time? times from, from 40 years ago when the game started at 8 o'clock. And that was, I have to say, one of the the, the most enjoyable things I've ever done in my career as a hockey player. I remember Scott Taylor of the Winnipeg Free Press was playing there too. And and once the game was over, we're just skating around, skating, we didn't want to get off the ice. The Zamboni driver eventually got so frustrated that he just started driving on while we were on the ice. But nobody wanted <laughs> to leave. It was just, oh, it was so good. But again, you know, that lasted. For about ten years, and then it kind of went the way of the dodo. I think the one in Denver in 2000 was the last time we played, and uh, it just you know you know times change, and you know you you don't want to sound like one of these people that's just pumping nostalgia all the time. But it really was, as you started out saying, a simpler time, and and just we we really had a lot of fun in those days. (laughs) Well, let's say on to uh,
0: going back to my original comment about the you know the the level of of player that comes into camp and, and, uh, as in fact, while we were chatting here, I got a, uh, an email. I'm sure you did too, uh, from one of the senior editors at the athletic, uh, uh, gently reminding me and probably you that we need to put our, uh, season predictions in. And I must say, I've been so, I, I, not torn but it's I've just been putting it off because I really have no idea in terms of you know the separation between teams that you know could be a playoff team and not be a playoff team teams that could be a playoff team and and could make a deep run in the playoffs there's so little gap and I think what happened last year especially with the New Jersey in the East and Colorado in the West were no one and I, I think it's fair to say if you pulled you went back and looked at predictions a year ago 99 percent of predictions would not have had Colorado sneaking into the playoffs in the West and would not have New Jersey um being a playoff team in the Eastern Conference. And so I wonder when you think about you know having to assess where teams are at. And maybe it's better to just look even at the bottom and say, are, are I mean like are there teams that how many teams right now do you think you could safely say Let's start with the Western Conference. I don't think this team has any chance of making the playoffs. And, and and maybe that's a reflection of just how difficult it is to parse through who might be the Western Conference champion or a team that will challenge for a Stanley Cup coming under the Western Conference. And it just strikes me that it might be as difficult now as it's ever been to make those kinds of prognostications.
2: Well, I think you're right, 100% right, as a matter of fact, because I think that, well, first of all, in the 21-team NHL, which is what it was when I first started and 16 teams made the playoffs, you you know, you had to be Notoriously bad to miss, so there an awful lot of teams in, in that in those days knew they were going to be in the playoffs. they flat out knew and and, and so when you have that knowledge when you know you're just, you're just better that you only have to be better than one team in your division you only have to be better than five teams in the in the whole league so uh, you, know, you could make the playoffs with a sub five hundred record in in those days so it, it, I think your approach was different that uh, uh, you know you would you, you knew you were going to be in the playoffs, and you wanted to make sure that when the playoffs started you were you were ready to hit the ground running and and, and be really good. Because of parity and because it's a thirty one team NHL right now, you can't you can't do that anymore. You have to be good on opening night and you have to be good Pretty consistently for 82 games. Otherwise, you miss. Uh, I look at the Pacific Division right now, and and I can't find a whole lot of separation among the, the top six teams. I mean, I think a lot of people will believe because San Jose added uh, Eric Carlson. They're going to have Evander Kane for the whole year. Joe Nuendike looks like he's going to be back and and uh, humming on all cylinders again. That they probably on paper are, are the best team. So I'm prepared to concede them one of the playoff spots. But then when when you get to to Vegas, to Anaheim, to Calgary, to Edmonton, even to Arizona, who I think has, has made some, some pretty good strides. Uh, all of those teams could make the playoffs provided things fall the right way. And this is why the regular season, we used to say the regular season was meaningless. Well, it it, it isn't anymore. You know, Calgary is a real good example. I, I, they've made some interesting changes. I think their one to 12 forwards are as good as they've been in decades, probably, but they've weakened themselves slightly on the blue line, and, and, and the goaltending has to hold up. So if, if you could tell me that between now and, and next April that Mike Smith is not going to get hurt, and that he's going to get his 64 games, and that he's going to play at the level that he played at last year before he got hurt, and that David Riddick can do as a backup goaltender what he did when he was the backup and not pressed into the starting role, then I would say, yes, Calgary's a playoff team. But but we don't know that. And I was just in Edmonton. And it's the same thing. You know, they, you know, this, it, can Ty Raddy do in the regular season what he's done in, in, in the preseason? And if so, does that mean that the McDavid line is set? And does that mean that, 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 Leon Dreisel is in a position to, to drive play from that second line. And, and if, if that's the case, then, then Edmonton is going to be better. Uh, you know, every team has, uh, you know, one or two question marks. And, you know, you can build a best case scenario and you can build a worst case scenario uh, for them. And, and you know, and, and it's impossible for us at the start of the year because we don't have those crystal balls polished exactly right to say how, how is it going to fall? Like, I don't know if Ty is going to be a 60 point guy or a 25 point guy. I, I I don't know that. I don't know if Kyler Yamamoto is going to make the team, and if he does, is he going to have the kind of impact that so many first-year players have had the last couple of years? So uh, it's crazy how challenging it is, but I think that if I'm a fan of the sport, and not necessarily a fan of just one specific team, that kind of uncertainty creates a lot of drama, and that's why people watch professional sports, to see how these
0: unlikely scenarios play out. Yeah, well, and Tony, you mentioned the San Jose Sharks, and I'm, I'm pretty sure yeah. – I think you might have mentioned Joe Noondike, but that's because you had his stick. But I think you're probably thinking of Joe Thornton, who I am – I'm so pleased that Joe Thornton is back in the game because between Joe Thornton and Brent Burns, it, it, they're just – there aren't uh, no one has more fun, I don't think, than the San Jose Sharks. And, you know, I I assume that's a, that's why Evander Kane decided that that was a good place for him long term. I assume that as the season moves along and I know that Eric Carlson can't uh, contemplate a long term uh, contract extension of whatever length it would be until into the new year. But that's a that's become such an interesting place that looks like it's. It looks like it's one of the most fun places to play hockey in in the NHL. And I I think, you know, when, you know, with the salary cap and with, you know, you mentioned the parity, you have to create an, an environment and an atmosphere where people want to go and where families want to go and where it's a place that's a pleasure to play hockey and not just a place to go and collect a, a paycheck. Or, I mean, do you think I'm, I'm overstating it or how important are those kinds of, you know, sort of intangible things in, in building a, a, a winning team and attracting players that want to be in your marketplace compared to, you know, any of the other 30 other teams in the
2: NHL? Yeah, well, you're not overstating it at all, and you've hit the nail on the head. Like, I was actually on... Uh, San Jose in the first two rounds of the playoffs last year, and I didn't really know Evander Kane all that well, to be honest with you. And uh, and I always find that one of the things that that gives you a sense of, of what a team is really like, you have to be in the dressing room. You have to be in the dressing room and see player interaction and, and just get a sense of it. Because sometimes, because most times, if, if all you're relying on is scrums and coaches' press conferences outside the dressing room, everyone is going to say the right thing. It, it, you know, you very rarely get anyone off message anymore. So to get a proper feel for how a team is, is interacting, uh, you know, how it feels about each other. You have to be in the dressing room. Like I was in Vegas early last year and it was like, Hmm, this is kind of special in here. And, (laughs) and so at a, at a certain point, uh, you know, like it felt like, okay, this, this is not going to just be a flash in the pan. It's going to be a a consistent success story. And I felt that way with the San Jose. I was uh, in their room a a, a number of different times. And, and I, I just, um, I I think that it's very much like any workplace, you know, if if you're comfortable in your workplace, if you like the people you work with, if it's fun to go to work, it stops being a job. And so I think that that, that is the atmosphere that they create in San Jose. And I give Doug Wilson credit for, for doing that. I think that he got that early on. Um, you know, Joe Thornton, one reason that he was run out of Boston was that he, because of, I, I think of that Sort of fun loving nature. And the, and the assumption was that, you know, like if you're smiling and laughing all the time, you don't really care about winning. Well, you know, and I know that Joe Thornton cares desperately about winning. Some of those playoff years where he was playing with all of those injuries, it kept him quiet. I mean, he, 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 when, he is the sort of guy that when it's time to go to work, he works. And he is also the sort of guy that. that that has this happy-go-lucky attitude and, 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 and enjoys his life. And, and I think he's a pleasure to be around. He's a pleasure to be around. I mean, I, I got to know Joe uh, because one year I was during that, that lockout year that canceled the, the entire season. I, I did a tour a, a week in Switzerland, a week in, in Sweden. And I spent three days in Davos with, with Joe and Rick Nash when he was first a second year player. And I, I, yep. I knew Joe a little bit, didn't know Nash at all. Went out for dinner, hung out with him for a couple days and really – you know came to appreciate both of these guys as people and uh, and so when when you know a couple of years later when Thornton got t- traded, it was like, oh my god i I can't believe you would give up an asset like this because because not only is he probably the greatest passer of his generation, but people like to be around him you just you just like to spend time with Joe Thornton, he's teasing you and uh, I, you know so so no you, you've hit the nail on the head and and um, you know when you, you look at what the, sort of the toxic attitude and, and all the things that are going on in Ottawa right now, and it's the antithesis of that. You know, So San Jose is getting it right. Ottawa somehow has managed to create a, a, an environment where no one wants to be. It will take, it will take time for them to repair that. It's, you can repair that. You can repair that. We've seen that in, in other uh, uh, markets and other situations. There was a time when Columbus was a little bit like that. Uh, um, so you can fix it, but it takes time, and the, the best thing to do is not get yourself into the the, that corner, and, and very consistently over the period of time that Doug Wilson has run the San Jose Sharks, he's created that kind of uh, open atmosphere. As long as you do your work, we are willing to to deal with your eccentricity. So Brent Burns can come in and flourish there, and I think Evander Kane is going to go in and flourish there as well.
0: Yeah, no, I think I couldn't uh, couldn't agree more. And it's a, you know it is it does take time, and it's funny how you know perceptions of teams, and you know I mean we're you know, Pittsburgh and Detroit both went through you know long periods of time where it was hard to get players to go there, and they were consistently bad, and it was considered a, a you know a, a sort of a, a quagmire of an organization in, in both those cases. And of course, both you know for long periods of time Pittsburgh's still there, and Detroit you know sort of going to have to rebuild that a little bit. Um, but both those uh, became destination. Uh, uh, franchises uh, for, for long periods of time, and it does. You know, I you mentioned you know, it starts from the top, it starts from ownership, and having good management and coaches who are trusted to do their jobs. And it's uh, easy to say, but it's they're not. It's not. It's not an easy thing to assemble. And that's. Yeah, and I think you see the franchises that are perpetually trying to find their way out of the wilderness. Is sometimes it, it, you know, it quite often it starts from the top and the people that are installed in important positions and. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. San Jose is you now they haven't got, you know, they they haven't got a championship yet. But I think they're in a position now that where you have to put them at or near the top of the teams in the West anyway that you could imagine coming through. Um, and before I let you go, so we, I could do this all day. I'm not sure that as, as broad as the Internet is, I'm not sure that they would allow me just to keep going uh, without pause. Um, but before I let you go. Eric DeHatchek, let's. Uh, we you know we referred to Colorado, New Jersey teams that came out of nowhere last year to to surprise and really invigorate both those those um, markets and and franchises. Is, is there one from each? Is there a team from each conference that you are particularly interested in watching this season as a team that could maybe make that kind of Uh, those kinds of inroads that could be a surprise playoff team, because I think everyone loves those kinds of stories, especially, you know, if a market, especially like in Colorado, where they have been, you know, so bereft of, of good news for, you know, for a long period of time, Uh, which, which teams in one team in each conference do you think might make that kind of, uh, have that kind of magical season?
2: Well, I'm very interested in seeing what happens uh, with Buffalo, you know, and, and I think that they, they they are starting to get all of the pieces in place. And and the hardest thing to forecast when when you develop the kind of young nucleus that Buffalo is developing right now is knowing when you take that next stride. So you know you can be you know not very good, not very good, average, and then boom, really good. Like you know, think about Toronto. You know, three years ago, Mike Babcock was talking about there's going to be a lot of pain, and right now, a lot of people see them as a as the favorite for the for the Stanley Cup. So you're never sure when organizationally you take that great leap forward. So I like Buffalo's pieces. And obviously, you know, is Carter Hutton a starting goaltender? And there's Linus yeah. Hallmark, a guy that can, can be a good 1B if he isn't the type of guy that can play effectively, you know, 60-plus games a season. I don't know that, and they don't know that. And we're only going to be able to find out once, the, once they start playing games. But if the goaltending is good or a, a little bit better than good, then, then I, I like all our other pieces. I mean, you know, in that the hockey pool that you and I are in with, uh, with Pierre Lebron, I had Sam Reinhart last year, and if you look at the way he played in the final two and a half months of the season, I think they're finally starting to get the guy that they... That they thought they were when they drafted him second overall. So I like the way he is playing. I, you know, I, I love the way Iko is playing. I'm interested to see what Middlestat can bring. I'm interested in seeing what Dalene can bring. These, these are really good pieces, and it may be too soon because you know both of those, the latter two that I mentioned, are are yeah. rookies. And um, the only thing is that I'm amazed at how how many young players can come in and make an impact right away. I mean that, that's whenever mm-hmm. I do hockey pools, I. I I've had this the last couple of years, a blind spot about that, because I, I was used to covering hockey. No matter who you were, it was just hard to make an impact in your rookie year. Like when Jerome McGinnell was a rookie, I think he only had like 49 points. He had a great year, but he didn't get a lot of points. So the game has changed, and, and the players are readier, and, and the way the, the style of hockey is in the NHL, these guys can succeed far earlier than they used to. It used to be, you know, the, those high end, even the high end talent took a long time to, to adjust. That doesn't happen anymore. So I, I'm very interested in Buffalo. And I think that they, they have a chance uh, just for that, those reasons. And, and you know, I I've, I've briefly referenced Arizona. There's another team that has really been in the wilderness for a long time. And you know their first 20 games last year were among the worst that the team has ever had. It just did nothing, nothing went right for them. I think partly they had to adjust to a new coaching staff. Ranta got hurt early, and it, just, it was a disaster. So, they, you know, they were good in garbage time and lots of people will say, okay, when there's no pressure on you can be good because that, that that's often... Been the case in, in the past in the National Hockey League. So can they carry their performance in the second half of the season when they were a very tough out? They were a very tough out after Christmas. You know, can they carry that forward and be a tough out for 82 games? I think so. You know, for one thing, I I think you know you were talking about creating an atmosphere and environment. Rick Tockett, players love him, and and when you yeah. you know I know you're real close with uh, with the Pittsburgh guys. You know how those guys, the Sidney Crosby, felt about Rick Tockett as a guy. I mean, they had personal interactions with him. I mean, he, he was a, a really important cog in Pittsburgh all those years that he was an assistant coach and he's carried that forward in, into Arizona. So if you have a coach that the players really, really want to play for, that, that's step one. I think Ranta... Uh, proved last year that he, you know, uh, if he stays healthy, he can be that guy in net. So that's important. And then, you know, some of these younger players that, that John Schaik has drafted are, are, are getting a chance. I mean, you know, the fact of that Dylan Strom is being talked about as a guy who might not even make the roster this year, or if he does, it will be in the bottom group of forwards. You know, when you think about his draft pedigree, that tells you something about the players that they've managed to, to put into the lineup ahead of him. So I, I think I, I think they could be uh, good, and i I know a lot of people are probably looking past them, but, but I, I expect that they're going to hang in in the playoff race for a long time this year, and, and who knows? You know, I'm not prepared to give them one of those spots because I do think there are eight better teams in the West, but, but they will be uh, markedly improved. Yeah, well, and no
0: market, uh, certainly in the Western Conference, deserves to have, you know, the opportunity to play some meaningful games into February and March because it's, uh, you know, uh, a rare trip to the 2012 conference final. Notwithstanding, it's it's been a pretty bleak time in Arizona. And as you and I both know, it's a pretty good place to go in the middle of winter. So uh, maybe, maybe if there's a storyline that could crop up, uh, I'm happy to to throw my hat in the ring to do that. But,
2: uh, so are you uh, and I going to be wrestling for that <laughs> trip? Is that what you're
0: telling me? <laughs> I'm just giving you fair warning, my friend, fair warning. All right, Eric DeHatchuk, I think it's time for you to go on with your day. But thank you so much for dropping by. It's just it's always a pleasure to catch up with you and a uh, treat to have you aboard on Two Man Advantage, the podcast. So thanks for doing this. And I'm sure this will not be the last time that I will come to you for uh, musical stories and other bits of knowledge for you to impart.
2: But thanks for doing this. All right. Well, feel free to call anytime. I really enjoy having our conversations and I hope our readers and listeners enjoy it too. All right. Thanks, Eric.
0: All right, my friend, we have now, we've done it now. Three episodes in a row, two man advantage, the podcast, always a pleasure. Um, when you and I chat next, the regular season will be underway. What's, do you have a where are you gonna where where are you gonna spend the opening nights of the regular season? What do you will you be on panel? Are you gonna be
1: on the road? What's what's
0: your plan for the first week of the regular season?
1: Yeah, so on the eve of the regular season opening, I'll be in New York for the Board of Governors, where the Seattle group will deliver an important update to the executive committee of the Board of Governors. And then the following day, I'll fly back home here to Toronto in time for Habs Lease. No better way to start oh, the season, yeah. <laughs> and I'll be in the rink writing about very, it for the
0: athletic. Very nice. Well, I, I will be looking forward to it, and of course, in between now and then, our annual hockey draft. So I'm already gearing up for that. Oh boy, I can't wait. Lots to lots to talk about when next time we gather, my friend. But uh, as always, a pleasure to catch up, and we'll do it again next week. Good job. Right on, right on, brother. You know it. <laughs>